Hey, it's Kathy. Today, we're presenting a story by producer Julianne Sato Parker. Julianne had originally debuted a longer version of this piece on the podcast Asian Americana, which we're linking to in our show notes. And we just got really excited when she shared her work with us and asked if we could collaborate on bringing it to Self-Evident, too. So here's Julianne with the story. Hi, Julianne. Hi, Bobby. How are you? How are, how are you doing? Ever since I was a kid, I'm good. my grandma and I have called each other a few times a week. Doing, cross, uh, doing the crossword puzzle. Huh? Not the she crossword. used to call me every Thursday to remind me the rotisserie chickens at Safeway were going on sale the next day. Or to tell me when Walmart started selling Mentos for five cents cheaper than Rosars. I'm just as quick to call her with good news. She's always been my most enthusiastic cheerleader. She's as eager to shower me with pride and praise for getting a good grade as for finding a good discount on a pair of shoes. I was just thinking of calling you because I heard you made asparagus tonight. <laughs> I did make asparagus tonight. It's really impressive. Lately, we don't have as much to talk about. It was really good, yeah. It's the spring of 2020, and we're all in the midst of waiting out the coronavirus. My parents moved my grandma into their house when the virus first broke out in nursing homes in Seattle in the hopes it would lower her risk of exposure. And I'm finishing up school remotely. So our lives have gotten pretty quiet. These days when we call, we usually start by talking about the weather. Isn't that a beautiful weather? We've been so lucky. Really beautiful spring. And then I get an update on where she's at with her latest jigsaw puzzle. This is a tough one, and the pieces are smaller, and they all look alike. (laughs) The only entertaining thing I have to offer her now are updates about my quarantine-inspired virtual dating experiences. So I'm really leaning into it. Oh, Jay, what's going on with your phone date? We upgraded. We're not just doing a phone call. We're doing a FaceTime. (laughs) I dressed just for my top half. Bottom half is um, pajamas. Oh, you got to be kidding. <laughs> but inevitably, the conversation always turns back to the coronavirus. You can't believe it's quarantine. Everyone, you know, it's everyone. Oh, this world is still at a standstill. Isn't that crazy? I mean, everything's crazy now. God, how long is it going to last? I've never seen anything like this. I think we all live through it. And then, without fail... The conversation ends with, Well, that's just the way the ball bounces. This is my grandma's go-to saying whenever something bad happens. That's the way the ball bounces. She says it all the time. When I was growing up, she'd say it if my team lost a soccer game, or if I called her to get some sympathy when I was homesick from school. Oh, you poor thing, she'd say. Then she'd take a long inhale, and as she released her breath, she'd say, Well, that's just the way the ball bounces. Shelby shrugs when she says it. Even on the phone, I know she's shrugging. The saying itself is kind of like one big shrug. But this phrase is kind of the antithesis to my response to the pandemic. I move through the day trying to focus on work, but ultimately falling down endless internet rabbit holes watching videos inside New York City hospitals, reading articles, looking at modeling charts. I grasp for any form of control I can. Sewing face masks, scrubbing grocery packages with bleach, outlining contingency plans for every possible combination of who might get sick in my family. I stay up at night often too anxious to sleep, 
imagining the worst case scenarios in vivid and dramatic detail. So the idea of shrugging this off seems kind of impossible. But every time we talk, my grandma keeps saying this phrase. That's the way it's about She updates me about her puzzle. She tells me how many hummingbirds she counted in the yard that day. She asks about my phone dates. And she repeats these words. Every time we talk. My grandma stands just higher than four foot ten these days with a gray perm that circles her head, kind of like a storm cloud. She's elegant, graceful. Her nails are always polished, with shades of pinks and reds, with names like Born to Sparkle or Make Him Mine. She listens to classical music with her eyes closed. She keeps tissues stuffed up her sleeve and pulls them out like a magician, handing them to you to wipe down your chair at a restaurant before you sit, or to wrap the last remaining bites of a sandwich to store in her purse for later. We've always been close, but it wasn't until I started college, about a decade ago, that I got to know a fuller version of her. A version beyond the charming, loving grandma who slept next to me whenever I stayed with her, or who slyly passed me candy during my sister's violin recitals. I think we are rolling. Oh, hi. My name is Dorothy H. Sato, and I was born in 1923. And I just love it here. The mountains right behind me, Mount Hood. It's a beautiful place to live. We sat in our patio that day, facing the outer edges of the pear orchard that's been in my family for nearly a century. Her backyard was always my favorite place in the world. It still sounds the way it always has. A cacophony of wind chimes my grandma strung up along the patio awning. The f f f of sprinklers the dull moan of a tractor somewhere deep in the orchard. I'd like to tell her whole life story. About her parents immigrating from Japan to America, about her father working in the lumber mills in Washington until he died aboard a ship back to Japan when my grandma was five or six. It's tempting to tell stories about my grandma's childhood, growing up in Seattle's Japantown, where her mother raised her and her four siblings in the back of a small hotel. We grew up in a hotel up until our wants weren't too much. There five kids scrabbling and all that. Went uh, swimming to Mount Baker quite often. Sometimes we had to walk. When he'd come home for dinner or something, he'd always yell up and he'd say, how's the weather up there? Saying, what's mom like today? <laughs> the guys would come and ask us to dance. And, and my brother would always be there too with his friends, so they'd always dance, come and dance with me. But the story I really want to tell begins on December 7th, 1941. When Japan declared war, I was in a movie theater, and all of a sudden on the intercom said, Any, anyone in uniform is to report to their station right away. But they didn't say why. And I didn't know until I came home and turned the radio on and found that Japan had gone Pearl Harbor. The United States entered World War II that day, and within the country, discrimination brewed against Japanese nationals and Japanese Americans. A quick side note, it's a mouthful to say Japanese nationals and Japanese Americans, so I'm going to start using the Japanese term Nikkei from here on out to reference the Japanese diaspora. Anyway, after Pearl Harbor, the Nikkei became the target of a lot of discrimination in the U.S., 
both by their neighbors and by the government. The city of New York has already ordered all Japanese nationals to remain off the streets. They imposed a curfew on all Japanese nationals and Japanese Americans. Well, my brother, he would invite his friends over to play poker. They played on the basement, they put blankets on, on, on the windows so they couldn't see it. The Department of Justice is moving rapidly to intern all Japanese nationals. We were supposed to disappear into the sunset. If you're Japanese, don't let people know you're Japanese. I was American. This will mobilize the efforts of the whole American people. But I guess that didn't matter later when they evacuated us. Nothing matters anymore now except national security. That spring, President Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066, which ordered the removal of all people of Japanese ancestry from their homes and into U.S. concentration camps. My grandma, who was 19 at the time, and her family were evacuated from Seattle and sent inland, first to a camp in Puyallup, Idaho, where they lived in horse stalls on a fairground, and later to a camp called Minidoka near Twin Falls. It was awful. It was just absolutely awful. The wind was blowing, the dust was blowing, and I mean, it was just absolutely awful. I thought, well, what are we doing in a hellhole like this? But that's what it was. I mean, everybody, it was just not me or my family. It was everybody that went there, you know? It was terrible. One summer I was watching a video in a museum. It was a series of interviews with Nikkei who were incarcerated. A woman was describing the experience, and then she shrugged and said, she got to Ganai. Then another person in the video said the same phrase. Then another. The subtitles translated the phrase to, it cannot be helped. After that, I started to notice the phrase all over the place. And it was usually used in the same way. To characterize the Nikkei as this passive and obedient group of people who rarely resisted their imprisonment. But this phrase is not a uniquely Japanese sentiment. It's actually super universal. A lot of languages have their own version. In Farsi, hameni kahast means it is what it is. In French, c'est la vie means such is life. They all essentially say the same thing, accept life as it is. But I really hated how the Japanese version was used. I'm not sure I really understood why. I think I just hated how fatalistic it was. I've always seen my grandma as this really strong-willed, self-assured person, and this phrase seemed to contradict that. The adoption of Shikataganai, to me, made people like my grandma seem kind of spineless. Passive, complacent even. I never said this to my grandma. But I did wonder about it sometimes. Why didn't they protest? Why did they go so quietly? Julian? Hi, Bobby. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fine. You know that phrase I keep asking you about? Yeah. What does it mean? Well, it can't be helped. I heard that all my life. My mother always said that when something happened beyond her control and nothing, she passed it on to us. 
you didn't really say that particular phrase growing up, but you always said, that's just the way the ball bounces, you know? Yeah, that's almost uh, the interpretation. It's almost like the phrase, yeah. I'm going to say yeah. this wrong, but the phrase like, got yeah. eventually replaced with, that's just the way the ball bounces. I never thought of it like that, but as you're mentioning it, you are right. I was going to ask if you feel like you've always had that kind of attitude. Yeah, I think I have, that whatever happens, happens. There are things you have no control over. Do you think that having that attitude helped you survive the internment in, like, the years during and after the war? Maybe. Maybe so. Whatever happened, we just went along without protest. My grandma often calls the formerly incarcerated Nikkei the silent Americans. It's how she describes their largely non-resistant removal and incarceration. We were herded like sheep, and we never protested. We never protested. We did exactly what they wanted us to do. This lack of protest is something that's always been on the forefront of my grandma's memory. But the thing is, there was resistance among the Nikkei. There were swells of protest throughout the concentration camps. There were draft resistors, conscientious objectors, organized riots, strikes, work stoppages. There were the no-nos who the government deemed disloyal to the U.S. Some Nikkei were sent to federal prison. There were others who filed lawsuits. And then there was the everyday resistance within the camps, sabotaging the fences that locked them in, smuggling in liquor, graffitiing the barrack walls. But most of this resistance was suppressed or erased. Our history's collective memory propagates this myth that the Nikkei were complacent captives. Historical accounts describe a group of people who silently accepted their fate, whose reaction to their mass incarceration was often summed up by the common use of this Japanese phrase, shikata ganai, cannot be helped. My grandma's memory has always supported this narrative, until for the first time a few days ago, when something shifted in her retelling of that time. Whatever happened, we just went along without protest. But I think that was just life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we protested, but the people didn't hear us. That was the first time I'd ever heard her say something like that. We protested, but no one heard us. Which, for the first time, made me wonder, who should really bear the burden of this title? The Silent Americans. To be silent implies you had a voice to begin with. A voice people would listen to. But how much of a voice did my grandma and other Nikkei truly have during the war? Who were the Silent Americans? The Nikkei? Who, under threat of law, physical force, and discrimination, were intimidated into compliance and actively silenced when they did resist? Or white Americans who had the collective power to support the Nikkei and oppose authority, but didn't use it? I felt a lot of shame when I realized this, that through all the years of interviewing my grandma and all the time she identified her own silence as though it was something to be ashamed of, that I never once thought to say to her, you weren't the silent one. The silent Americans is 
not your title to bear. The problem with that title is the same problem with how the phrase, it cannot be helped, shikate ganai, is often used. They both seem to imply that the Nikkei consented to their incarceration, that it was their own passivity that allowed for it to happen. Of course that wasn't true. I mean, we protested, but the people didn't hear us. My grandma spent about a year and a half surrounded by barbed wire fences and guard towers, waiting for her imprisonment to end. When she was released, she took an eastward train to Chicago, where she spent about seven years, trying to pick up where her life had left off. She worked, she dated, she spent summer days by Lake Michigan. Eventually, she met and married my grandpa, a Japanese-American farmer from Oregon. Uh, he really came after me. <laughs> I mean, when he met me, he wanted to marry me. I mean, you know, and I'm thinking, what? He was a country boy, and I'm a city girl. My God, I got over there, and they have chickens on the farm. <laughs> my grandpa's early years after the war were different than my grandma's time in Chicago. His small agricultural community in Oregon was fuming over the return of its Japanese community members. He slept in his basement when he first got home scared of what his neighbors might do to him at night. Stores wouldn't sell him groceries or gas. The local newspapers published articles with headlines that read, Japs not wanted here, with the signatures of every community member who agreed. Ray came back to a hotbed. They were not welcome. They were scared for their life. They didn't know what would happen to them. But he held his head high, went back to farming, and he was a very outstanding member of the community all through his life. But it was very sad. I mean, it was a very hostile place. By the time my grandma arrived from Chicago, about seven years after the war ended, newly married and fresh to farm life, things had calmed down. There wasn't as much blatant and hostile discrimination as there was in the early days after the war. But my grandparents still protected themselves and their kids from discrimination in any way they could. And the feeling when we came out of the war was Assimilate yourself <laughs> to the American society. Don't let people know you're Japanese. Don't speak Japanese in public. Let people know you're American citizens. And that's what it was. We were told not to go around saying I'm a Japanese American, you know? And I think that was the underlying thing, which was absolutely wrong. But that's what happened. I always spent hours snooping around my grandma's house when I visited. She keeps everything. Her house is a treasure trove of newspaper clippings, stylish outfits from the 40s, trinkets from her travels. I once found a box of teeth my mom claimed to be her molars. My grandma knew I snooped. She'd wish me luck whenever I told her I was heading down into the basement. I think she even started leaving things out for me to find, like her old high school yearbook or film camera of my grandpa's. On one of my ritual snoops, I found a tiny silver ring. It fit only on my pinky finger, 
and had the initials HS carved into the round, flat face. When I showed her the ring, I asked her who it belonged to. She told me it was hers. My mother told me that she had named me after the seashore, Hama. But in the early days of a brewing war, my grandma and her siblings all changed their Japanese names to American names. Why I picked Dorothy, I would never know. I've mourned the loss of my grandma's name for years, along with the loss of whatever else she had to let go of. Of language, of traditions, of all the things I couldn't even recognize, but felt went missing in my family. I think that's why I felt so compelled to understand my grandma's story. I wanted to feel connected to these things that were lost. I wanted to find them, pick them up, and reform them into something whole. Something clear, something identifiable. I kept thinking I might unearth some fundamental lesson I wanted her to pass along to me, like a physical heirloom I could inherit. When I realized this funny phrase my grandma always said to me growing up was maybe just the assimilated version of a sentiment with deeper roots, I felt like I had unearthed that thing. Somewhere along the way, Shikataka and I became that's just the way the ball bounces. Hamako became Dorothy. But everything that made my grandma who she was was never lost or left behind. Some of it just got covered up by something else. A few days ago, I went to visit my grandma. I parked at the bottom of my parents' driveway, laid a towel on the pavement, and sat down. My mom opened the door, waved, and disappeared back inside. Then my grandma's gray perm appeared in the doorway. Oh, hi there. It's so good to see you. I know, it's so bizarre. All the flowers are beautiful, so how you been otherwise? The visit didn't last long. Uh-oh. She shooed me away and shouted for me to get into my car, to drive straight home so I wouldn't catch a cold. I sat in my car for a few minutes, waiting for the hail to pass, watching the small ice chunks bounce off my windshield. That's just the way the ball bounces. I thought about how faithfully and firmly my grandma has repeated this phrase to me lately, a steady reminder in a moment of huge uncertainty. I think the phrase had more than one meaning, and it depended entirely upon who was using it. When people in authority and people with privilege used these phrases, it cannot be helped, it is what it is, such as life, in the context of injustice, it was to absolve their own inaction, to placate their own passivity, to place the burden of change on the oppressed. But the meaning of the phrase I didn't understand until recently was how the Nikkei used it during the war. It wasn't until this pandemic hit and my grandma began to cycle through this predictable repetition of, that's just the way the ball bounces that I began to understand her use of this phrase. 
Her steady repetition was the opposite of passive. It was a mantra. These words, this attitude, helped her endure the injustice of her incarceration. It encouraged acceptance for circumstances beyond her control. It was never about complacency. At its most menial, it was a shrug. And at its most meaningful, it was about surviving. I don't bear any hatred or animosity to what happened to us. Do you remember feeling like wronged? She wasn't fun. And we suffered a lot in camp and all that, but I lived through it. A lot of us lived through it. Towards the end, I figured, well, this is what life has brought us. And, you know, if you keep thinking about how awful evacuation was and how awful people were, then it's just like cancer. It grows on you. And pretty soon, you're going to be a bitter old woman. When my grandma was incarcerated, she accepted what was happening was beyond her control. She made her peace with it and moved forward. When she was released, she made changes to adapt to a world unjustly prejudiced toward her. She made her peace with that too and moved forward. That seems to be the real meaning behind these phrases. The ball is going to bounce whatever direction it's going to bounce. All we have control over is how we respond to it. We either change or we accept. Those are the only options. Fretting somewhere in the middle is just suffering. I think that's why my grandma keeps repeating these words to me now. I think she sees me fretting somewhere in the middle and is telling me to change what I can and to accept what I can't and move forward. Are you tired of me interviewing you yet? If I have anything to offer to you, that is great. <laughs> I think you have a lot to offer. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I think there's a lot of wisdom in the things that you say. Oh, thank you so much. You make me feel good. <laughs> I'm sure I'll call you again with more questions. Okay, that's good. <laughs> okay, great talking to you, honey. Good Take talking care. to you. Love you. Have fun with your next telephone date. <laughs> oh, I will. I'll be sure to keep you updated. Uh, okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> this episode was produced and written by Julianne Sato Parker. James Boo and Julia Shu helped Julianne edit, score, and remaster the audio for Self-Evident. Our executive producer is Ken Akeda. Self-Evident is a Studio to Be production. Our show is made with support from PRX and the Google Podcast Creator Program. And, of course, from our listener community. I'm Kathy Irway. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep sharing Asian America stories.